So honored that you're here. If you're watching online, thank you so much for joining us. We want to take a few moments today and just focus our attention on the cross. And over the next few minutes, we're going to do that. And then I want to show you the impact that a specific element of what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified has had on a, on a friend of mine and, and talk about how that can personally apply to every single one of us today, how it does apply to every single one of us. I want to begin with an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. Hundreds of years before the death of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah gives us a picture that we can look back on today as an accomplished work. And what an incredible life that Jesus lived on earth. His teachings were revolutionary. His miracles were unexplainable. His compassion for others was unlike anything anyone had seen. His compassion, even of those that the culture despised, set an example. He healed the sick. He welcomed children. He gave sight to the blind. Yet, he is this suffering servant, despised, rejected, familiar with grief, ultimately crushed emotionally, spiritually, and of course, physically. And Isaiah says that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement's kind of a, a harsh word, isn't it? It's not a word we use very much, but if you use it, you mean it as a form of harsh punishment. If you are chastising someone, you are letting them have it, aren't you? And the why of the cross, according to Isaiah, is for our peace, our wholeness, our healing. And every single one of us, we're in need of that. Every single one of us are in need of that peace today. Every single one of us are in need of that healing today because every single person born in human history has the same problem. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. But the mark is specific. There's only one mark. There's only one bullseye. And that bullseye is spotless, sinless perfection, holiness. And none of us come into this world like this. You can miss the mark by a little or you can turn around and shoot in the other direction. You can be a good person and barely miss it or you can be completely rebellious. Either way, all of us miss it. In fact, we're born missing it. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Sin came into the world due to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden and was passed down to every single one of us. And the penalty for that sin is death. Death means separation. It's both physical and spiritual. We were born separated from God. But that's not what God wants. It's not how he started in the Garden of Eden where he could be in perfect communion with the man and woman, where he could be in perfect, unhibited relationship, where they were created perfectly whole, being known by God and getting to know him. But yet when sin entered the world and they're cast out of the garden, sin creates separation. And ever since the garden, the desire of God has been to end that separation and he has taken steps to do just that. And to understand the steps that God has taken, I wanna do for just a few moments, just stay with me, it won't take long, I promise. I, wanna, I want to just for a few moments, I want us to take a historical flyover so we can understand some of the steps that God was putting in place to begin to end that separation, but the steps just would not be enough until Jesus came and did what he did for us on the cross. After God's people, the children of Israel are delivered from Egypt, they end up at the base of Mount Sinai where God gives them the 10 commandments. And there God asked Moses to take an offering. What are they taking an offering for? They're, they're taking an offering for a place where God can dwell and where they can worship him. Exodus chapter 25 verse eight says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. In Exodus 25, Moses said, God says to Moses, let anyone who wants to give, give. Whatever is on their heart to give, let them give. And then what would follow are very precise instructions for how to build this place where God would dwell. We know it as a sanctuary or the tabernacle. Instructions for pieces of furniture. Instructions for a perimeter of curtains. Instructions for a perimeter that would cover the top of the structure. The structure itself would have two rooms. The first would be referred to as the holy place and it would have a screen in front of it that would prevent anyone from just looking inside. And then the, and, and in that room there was an altar where some bread was placed. There was a lampstand. There was an altar of incense. And then there was the holiest of holy places, that second room, that innermost room. And in Exodus 26, instructions were given for a veil to be hung between the two rooms. And the second smaller room contained just one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And the cover of the Ark is called the mercy seat. And over the lid of the Ark is where God's presence would be. Right over that Ark. That's what makes it so important. Is that in between the angels on the top, on the lid of that Ark, God's presence would dwell just right there. In that space in the Holy of Holies, hidden behind a veil that no one could get into and that no one could see, except for one day a year, on that day of atonement, the high priest, who in this case is Moses' brother Aaron, on the day of atonement, he would kill a bull for his own sins. And he would bring some of the blood of that bull inside with them, with him. And then he would have two goats outside of the room, that first room separated by a screen. And one of the goats would be killed and Aaron would carry 
the blood of that goat and some incense inside the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 16 tells us about it. It says, he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. You have really got to get this right so that you do not die. And so once a year, one person is, is invited to pull back the veil and to walk inside. But there has to be enough smoke from the incense so that he cannot view the presence of God that is above the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So he's walking in seemingly blind, clouded by smoke. And he would take the blood of the bull and of the goat and he would just sprinkle it onto this piece of furniture that he's not allowed to touch and not even allowed to see clearly. And then the second goat that was left outside as the priest would come back out from behind the veil. The second goat we would know as the scapegoat, the goat that was taken outside of the camp. The word is the Azazel. The Azazel was taken outside of the camp, sent into the wilderness and left to die. It's literally, Azazel literally means taken away. The sins of the people are taken away. This was the system put in place to manage the presence of God. God's presence would rest in that room as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They would not pick up camp unless that cloud lifted out of that room and gave them the cue that it was time to move on. They are living with a clear demonstration of God's presence. They are experiencing miracles. There's forgiveness of sins. They are worshiping. They are having an experience of God, but there is still separation. There is still a problem. There is still separation. I wonder if what was true for the children of Israel might be true for some of us today. Living with a clear demonstration of God's presence, hearing the stories of what's happening in other people's lives, experiencing miracles. We know there's forgiveness of sins. We even come into a place like this and worship and have an experience of God. But in your heart of hearts, if you were to answer honestly, you would say, you know what, when it comes to me and God, I still feel like there is separation. Now we come back to Jesus on the evening before this day. In the garden of Gethsemane, he prays to his father, your will be done. Then he stands to his feet. And from the moment Judas betrayed him with a kiss, a chaotic scene unfolds. The disciples run away and abandon him immediately. And Jesus is brought from the garden of Gethsemane back up into the city where a trial is hastily put together by Jewish religious leaders. They find him guilty of blasphemy as at one point in this crazy mock trial, he does speak to them and say, yes, I am the son of man. He uses a term from the Old Testament that makes all of them go crazy as he equates himself with God. And so instantly they blindfold him and according to scripture, they ball up their fists and they punch him and they mock him and they say, who hit you? 
The first part has begun. He has sweat drops of blood in the garden. He has been found guilty. And now they're balling up their fist, hitting him randomly, and he cannot even see it. These Jewish religious leaders needed the help of Rome to get what they really wanted. They wanted Jesus put to death. So they take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate ultimately finds no fault in him. And he gets a kick out of this idea that this might be the king of the Jews. The Jews are people that he does not like, he detests. He probably resents having to be in charge of them. And so here on their holiday, Passover, why not have a little fun if they're going to bring me their king? The one that the people want is their king, that the rulers don't want is their king. So he decides for no other reason than to make a little sport out of Jesus. John chapter 19, verse one says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him just for the pleasure of a Roman governor. There was no reason for him to be beaten. We have no idea how many times they whipped him. There was no law for how many times you could whip a Jew with that vicious cat of nine tails. Nine ends to this whip and historically we're told that this whip would have jagged pieces of rock and glass attached to each one. This alone killed most people and probably was what Pilate was hoping to accomplish. Verse two says, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, hail king of the Jews. These are Roman soldiers mocking him and slapping him in the face. Pilate is now mocking both Jesus and his accusers as he presents him the king of the Jews with this crown of thorns beaten into him, into his head for good measure. And then a robe is placed on him and Pilate continues his mocking, behold the man, behold him. And the Jewish leader says, we don't wanna look at him. We want him dead. Crucify him, they say. Pilate pulls Jesus back away from the little private porch where the Jewish leaders have been viewing him. And he says, you gotta give me something here. You gotta give me something here or you're going to be killed. This is going to get out of control. And Jesus wouldn't even, why won't you even answer me? Do you know what I have the authority to do? And Jesus just looks at him and says, you really don't have any authority here. I know who's in charge here. And so then Pilate takes him back out onto the big porch where all of the people could see him. And mocking again, he says, behold the king, behold the king. And people in the crowd, many of whom no doubt had shouted Hosanna just days before. Verse 15 says, they begin to shout, take him away, take him away, crucify him. The Jews didn't realize it, but he is now the scapegoat. 
the Azazel, the takeaway of God, the sins of the people, even the ones who are mocking him, even the ones who have turned him over to death, even their sins have been placed upon him in this moment. He is dying for them just as sure as he is dying for you and for me. And they gave him the cross to carry outside the city where you always sent the scapegoat. Verse 17 says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. The streets of Jerusalem are winding and busy. The traditional path is referred to as the way of suffering. I've had the privilege of walking down this path It is a busy marketplace. It's a crowded marketplace. When my wife and I will walk down it together, we're not even able to walk side by side because the merchants and the people shopping, it's so busy, it's so hectic. Even the merchants will put even tables out to make the the path even harder to get by because they want you to come in and shop in their place. And so this is the street that he's walking down and he's taken outside of the city to a place that someone at some point looked at and said, you know what, if you look in the side of that hill, I feel like... I see the, in the side of that hill, there's the face of a skull. And most likely the cross was not put on top of that hill, but along the streets outside the city. You see, the Romans walked prisoners through the streets and crucified along the streets to maximize the amount of mockery someone would endure, trying to put him to open shame. And when he finally arrived, to the place where the post for the cross would be put in the ground, he would be nailed by his hands and his feet. You know, emerging out of your hands from your wrists is a a large nerve that with the spikes they would have used would have most likely been pierced. Nerve pain, searing and burning through his body. And every time he would push up on those nails through his hands, And his feet, every time he would push up, his lung capacity would decrease. He was ultimately, in trying to breathe, suffocating himself. The Romans enjoyed torture as much as they enjoyed execution. And then while he was hanging there, a different kind of anguish. As all of our sins are heaped upon him, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, says about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On this day, we look at our Savior, left alone, betrayed, denied by his closest friends, fake charges, mockery, torture, abandoned by his father, yet his words on the cross were filled with forgiveness and pardon and compassion all the way till his last breath. And with those last breaths, Jesus declares, it's finished. The work is done. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. But when he did that, a miracle occurred. Not just the miracle of his death, not just what we look at today. A miracle occurred where God himself made himself visible in this moment. You see, there's no more portable tent in the wilderness. Solomon had built a temple with instruction from God. It has been destroyed, but now it's been replicated there in Jerusalem. It's built onto a huge platform, acres and acres and acres, 
Porches and walls and gates have replaced curtains. And inside, though, there are still two rooms. One a holy place and one the holiest of holy places. And in front of that holy of holies, there is a veil guarding the entrance. Guarding the entrance to that room that was 30 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet long. It's a cube. The veil in front of it is at least 30 feet high. The proscenium behind me, the opening behind me, is 24 feet high. The veil covering the Holy of Holies is over 30 feet. This proscenium is 44 feet across. This veil was close to, again, 30 feet across. First century historians tell us it would have taken 200 men to carry the veil. The historian Josephus said you could have put horses on either side of it, charges of horses, multiple horses, and tied them to it, and they could not have pulled it apart. It was as thick as a man's hand. This was the place that the high priest continued to enter once a year on the day of atonement and continued to block access for everyone else. The same Levitical laws are being practiced and now in this day and time even manipulated further, creating the same problem. Separation. Separation. But at the moment of Jesus' death, everything changes. Seemingly simultaneous with his last breath, with seemingly simultaneous with his last statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, then God makes his own statement. Mark chapter 15 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as if God himself reached down to say, the death of my son changes everything. Because his blood has been shed, the sacrifices are over. Because the veil was torn, you don't need a priest for access. Your prayers and my prayers become as significant as the holiest moments in history and the holiest prayers in history given by prophets and priests and kings, because the veil was torn, separation is over. You are invited into the very presence of God, every single one of you, because the veil was torn. From the top down, from the top down. And this is not just some theological platitude and some just random happening at the moment of Jesus' death. This is God from the top down giving you and me access to a daily personal relationship with him. And when you understand it, it changes everything. You see, in our world, the prince of the power of the air still tries to create separation. He still tells us we're not good enough. Sin still tries to keep us at a distance. Even organized religion has the ability 
to keep people at an arm's length and to say, you can come this far and no further. But when Jesus died, the father said, come all the way in every one of you. I want you to see the impact it had and the practical impact it can have on your life. And no one tells it better than a friend of ours here at Westridge, one of our staff members, Kevin Dunlap, who tells his story of how the veil being torn impacts him. Have a look. I was born in the Midwest, in, in Akron, Ohio, in, in um, a very uh, Catholic, Italian, Irish uh, environment. Uh, and so grew up with a lot of tradition and a lot of, a lot of uh, religion. Um, my parents were both Roman Catholic, so we were, we were raised Roman Catholic. And that was our identity. Uh, when you would talk to somebody, if they asked if you were a Christian, you would say, no, I'm Roman Catholic. Um, went to church almost every day. My, my grandparents actually built the Catholic church that, I, uh, that we attended. Growing up in that environment, a very a religious environment, um, it was about, again, what you did. In the Catholic tradition, you don't eat a half hour before you go to Mass. So that was a, that was a sign of fasting. Um, you always ate fish on Fridays because you didn't eat meat. That was part of fasting, regardless of Lent or not of Lent. It was a tradition um, based in, in the religion. Um, so that was kind of the environment that, that uh, you grow up in, and it's very performance-based. Um, you, you valued your faith based on how good you were in comparison to others. So I can rationalize my way and say, I was pretty good. I was at least better than the next guy, so therefore I was good enough to earn my way into heaven. But the reality is, uh, I, was living, um, I was living in the world. We used to get high on the way to school. Um, it was a pretty rough lifestyle. Um, but when I looked at comparison to all my friends, it's what everybody did. So that became the norm. So we would live that way Monday through Saturday, and then either Saturday night or Sunday go to church. And um, those two didn't add up very well. So as I got in my early 20s, um, through God's sovereignty, he allowed me to meet um, a pretty awesome woman uh, who will celebrate 30 years actually this May, uh, my wife Stephanie. And she, she grew up in a Christian home, but she really wasn't walking intimately with him at that time. So we ended up connecting um, and dated for a while and got married. And soon after that, we had, uh, ha- had our first child and then, uh, then had our second child. And it was around that time when, when um, we had our second daughter that our marriage started to crumble. I was living... Um, the work hard, play hard lifestyle. And she realized that's not how she grew up and that's not what her faith told her. And so it was during that time when she started going back to church that she grew up in. Um, I didn't understand why anybody would go to church on a Wednesday night or anybody would go to church on a Sunday night. I was thinking she was having like an affair. So I actually went to church, not for the right reason, but for the wrong reason. I would go to see what she was doing. And as I was there, um, I was hearing the truth of the gospel. I was meeting people that loved me, um, in spite of how jacked up I really was. Um, One Sunday, the pastor was preaching, and he was talking about the assurance of salvation. And he shared in that story that at the time of the crucifixion, that the temple veil, veil tore, that the curtain that divided the temple from the Holy of Holies tore from top to bottom, which allowed us 
now to have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And for somebody that grew up in a Catholic church that went to confession and we would go into a booth and there was a curtain that divided us and the priest and we we confess our sins. Um, for me, that blew my mind. That was mind shattering. And it made sense. Religion before didn't make sense. But the gospel and hearing what happened at the time of the crucifixion was revelatory for me. When the curtain veil, when the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, um, a couple things come to mind. Is number one, um, it did make that direct path so that now I could communicate to God through Jesus. But also it was, it was God coming down, Jesus coming down to us, not us having to go to him. He's pursuing us. I think the second thing that I, that I realized after the fact was as I read scripture, um, and I started to open up the Bible. Um, I realized that the, that the, the size of the, of the curtain, we think of a simple curtain. Uh, that curtain in today's language would be the same as Kevlar is today. And they, they say it's as thick as a hand and it could weigh up to four to six tons. Regardless, it's not something that easily tore. And so it just showed the might and the power of what God would do to come after me. And so again, that was convicting all my life, I've tried to work my way to God. And because of what happened when the temple veil tore, I saw that where God came after me, I didn't have to come after him. Everything that we do is performance-based at work, in sports, in school. And yet we try to then allow religion to take that same performance-based mentality. And that's not the truth of the gospel. It's what Jesus did for us. What he did for me is enough. There's nothing I can do to earn my way. And there's nothing I can do for him to turn his back on me. What was done is done. And what I like to say is the veil is torn. Because that veil was torn through Jesus Every single one of us have access to the Father. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, brethren, my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience in our bodies with pure, washed with pure water. You can draw near to God today because this image of the veil from the writer of Hebrews applies to Jesus. His flesh was torn that he might be the way of access. His blood was shed to be that sprinkling of blood that the priest used to have to do for our sins. His blood was shed to cover all of our sins, everything that's ever been done wrong on this planet. And you and I can come, can draw near and come right into the presence of God because that blood covers our sins. His death paid the penalty. He was forsaken. He was separated so that you would not have to be. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still separated, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? You have been given access to God by the son, Jesus. 
There's no more need for separation. He is not willing that any should perish and die separated from him. He made it possible for every single one of us to know him. And that's why we call today a good Friday. You may be sitting here today thinking, yeah, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't see it. There's one more analogy involving a veil. It actually involves a a different veil from the Old Testament, but the principle applies. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 16 says this, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil is removed. You might be sitting here today, you might be watching in an office somewhere and you might just say, yeah, but I don't see it. Yet, but for by grace are you saved through faith and not of any work that you can do. This is a gift of God. And if you will accept the gift of God, his one and only son, and if you will believe that the gift of God came so that you would not have to be separated from God any longer, so that you would not have to deal with the wages of that separation, which is death, eternal separation. And if you will speak it, if you will confess it with your mouth, if you will pray it back to him, then can I tell you, the veil will be removed and you'll be able to take hold of life that's truly life in a way that you have not been able to up until this moment. But if you accept him, if you will believe in him, and if you'll speak it, he'll remove your veil and give you life anew. Would you bow your head with me? Today the work is done. And we celebrate it because of what we know is coming, because of his resurrection. It validates the veil being torn. Every miracle happened. Every word he said is true. Every promise will be kept, not only because of what happened on that day he was crucified, but because of what happened on Sunday morning. When God gives him the power, the Father gives the Son the power to be raised from the dead. And if you're here today, And if you will accept that plan for your life from God himself, who doesn't wanna be separated from you any longer, but wants to invite you into a relationship with him, if you will accept that, if you will believe that by faith, and if you will speak it, if you will confess it in prayer, then you'll be forgiven, the veil will be removed, and you can begin what our pastor has called for years, the abundant life journey. You can take hold of life that's truly life. If you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, would you just right now, from your heart to his, would you just pray? In your own words, God, I accept it. I accept it that Jesus was sent and that he died for me. I believe that he paid it all. 
He paid for all my sins, all my mistakes, the little ones and the big ones. Jesus paid it all. I speak that to you now, God. I want to give my life to you. And I want to experience a brand new life. God, take the veil away from my life once and for all. If you pray that, we want to come alongside you. Whether you're in the room or watching from somewhere, you can text the word follow to 77453. In your phone, just type the number 77453 and text the word follow. And we want to come alongside you and help you know what it means to walk and live with Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who paid it all. Would you look, at, look up at me, church? He paid it all. He paid it all. He paid it all. And then he rose from the dead. And then he rose from the dead so that everyone would know the significance of what happened, so that everyone would understand that the pain was worth it, that every drop of blood covered your sins and mine, that he has given us access to the Father, that the veil was torn. It's all possible because of what Jesus did on that Friday and because of what he did on Sunday morning. So let's worship him together right now, the one who gives us access to the Father and the one who paid it all for you and for me. Let's worship our risen Savior. Let's worship our King. Come on.